Our Father, every person in this room counts on that truth, that indeed there is grace and mercy available to those of us who know that we have no right in and of ourselves to stand in your presence. Your word says that all of our works are as filthy rags. Those things that we thought would merit uh, your favor, that, that supposed righteousness, your word calls it, a filthy rag. Those things that we thought would, would make it impossible for you to turn us away are the very things that stand between you and us. And so now, Father, having, having flung those from us and laid hold to Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for us on the cross, and that only, we have found grace and mercy. We stand, we, we look forward to being in your presence, clothed in his righteousness, certainly in none of our own, because there is none of our own. And so, Father, as people who have found grace and favor, we come to cry out of the deeps of our souls to ask for more, for more leadership, for more forgiveness, for more grace, for more mercy, for more maturity. All of it, oh God, we understand, must be authored from heaven because the flesh profits us nothing. So Lord, um, as we worship here this morning, might you stimulate us to new plateaus of, of desire and longing for holiness. Might our worship service prompt us to want those things that are spiritual as opposed to those things material and temporal. Father, we, we pray that as we give now, you will be pleased to see the sacrifice that went into the gift. It is not the size of the gift, O oh God. It is the size of the sacrifice, the size of the faith required to make the offering. And so in a lot of ways, Father, there is more of worship going on in these next couple of minutes than in any other time. Because now we all get to tangibly express that we love you and we trust you. Father, be pleased in heaven by the performances that you watch coming from every chair in this room. Might our celestial audience of one find pleasure in the worship of his people. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Open your Bibles, if you will, to Psalm 119. And um, you'll be needing a Bible an awful lot this morning, more than customary. Uh, and uh, a lot of it will be spent in Psalm 119. So, um, get ready to flip. Psalm 119, of course, I think many of you know, is the longest psalm in the Bible. It's, um, it's, it's noted not simply for its length, it's noted for its subject matter. And its subject matter has to do, indeed, with God's Word. I want to read you just one verse, which is uh, what I would call my text this morning, and then we'll launch into um, the subject of the morning. 
Follow as I read at verse 165. Psalm 119, 165. It says simply, Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God, oh, it endures forever. I just finished, as most of you know, the, a, a book study in the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark. And so we have the summer before I start anything else in the fall. And I wanted to spend the weeks that I have with you uh, in the summer looking at the core values of Grace Evangelical Church. Now, there's an insert in your bulletin. You might want to get a hold of that, too. And it lists for you six things that are really important around here. Uh, I, I'm not to, I don't want to discuss with you who's important around here. I want to discuss with you what's important around here. Now, just for a, um, uh, hopefully, a, a word of clarification, uh, you might find the core values confusing with our, our philosophy of ministry. Let me, let me try to explain what we're talking about here. Gang, you've heard me say uh, hundreds of times, I hope, that our purpose statement is this. We're trying to reach an unchurched world through maturing believers. And then I throw at you six core values. What is the relationship of the core values to the ministry statement, to the purpose statement? Let me explain. Let me, let me view it like this. Imagine that you're trying to scale the heights of Mount Everest. The goal is, of course, the peak, the top. Well, guys, for us as a church, that, the, the goal, the peak, is to reach an unchurched world through maturing believers. But how do we intend to do that? Well, our strategy in arriving at that summit is through those six core values on that insert in your bulletin that you find there. Those are the things that we feel will enable us to reach our goal. Six things that are really important around here. And so I want to spend the summer going over those six things with you, and we'll devote one Sunday to some and two Sundays to others. But um, I, I want us to uh, once again be reminded of the things, the strategy that is used by Gracie Band in hopes of reaching an unchurched world through maturing believers. The first one that you'll see on your insert has to do with truth. Truth is very important around here, and it states on that little insert that the primary way that God establishes his rule is through the teaching and application of the inspired word of God. And you've got a couple of texts there that are listed for you if you'd like to check those out. But the first thing that I need to do is make sure that you're still with me. That is, there's a point of clarification that needs to be made. That is in core value number one. If you look at core value number one, you've noticed, or perhaps didn't notice, that we have made a leap. It's a subtle leap, uh, but it's a, it's a uh, understandable leap, I think you'll agree. But notice the leap that we've made. We are equating truth with the Word of God. We say that truth is important to us. And then in explanation we say that the way that God establishes his rule is through the teaching and application of his inspired word. So what we have done 
is equate truth with the Word of God. And we are justified in doing so, ladies and gentlemen. If you'll notice in Psalm 119, verse 160 says, The entirety of your word is truth. So what we're saying, ladies and gentlemen, when we, when we say that truth is important to us, let me tell you what we mean. Uh, what is really paramount to us as a church is God's word. Because we're convinced that it is truth. It doesn't contain truth. It doesn't become truth. It is truth. Ladies and gentlemen, to say that it contains or becomes is pure existentialism. We're saying that this book, as it sits on your shelf, perhaps unread, is truth. Not that it becomes truth to you in some existential moment as you get some inspired thought. No, no, no. Ladies and gentlemen, this book is truth. So when we say truth is a core value, let me say we're also not saying something that might jump into your mind. We're not talking about honesty. Like you would say, Oh, uh, I'm looking for an honest salesman who would tell me the truth. No, we're not talking about honesty. We're not even talking about ethics, which is another subset of the truth. All those, those things are very important. You would certainly much rather buy from an honest salesman, would you not, than a non-honest one. And we love ethics. But those are, that's not what we mean. What we're saying, ladies and gentlemen is that God's Word is absolutely vital to us because we believe that it is the primary way that God establishes His rule and that comes through the teaching and application of His inspired Word. Now gang, um, also some of you may be here uh, rather new to this idea of being inspired. That is, that the Bible is inspired. And, and that's something that we want to teach you in the future. Guys, it's very important to us. We believe that that book contains no errors, no myths, no contradictions, uh, as perhaps some of you have been taught in the past. Uh, gang, if there's anything that my seminary education equipped me to do, it is to defend this book, and I delight in doing so. But that's really not the subject this morning. I'm not here to talk to you about inspiration. That is, that the Bible is inspired. We believe that. We believe it firmly. We believe it passionately. We believe it that it's intellectually defensible and that we have not committed some kind of intellectual suicide by committing ourselves to this book. No, no. But we'll talk about that later. And in every conversation that you'll get in around here, at least with staff, you'll discover our common commitment that this book is error-free. What we want you to see this morning is why this book is so important to us. And I want to mention five reasons. Um, and I can only mention five because of time concerns. There are numerous others. But what I've done is try to identify the top five. <laughs> because there are many more than five reasons that this book has enraptured so many of our hearts. 
But I want to list five. And you're going to need your Bibles. So I hope they're still open in your laps. First of all, ladies and gentlemen, the reason number one that this book is so important is because this book is central to the carrying out of the Great Commission. Now, gang, we looked at the Great Commission last week. Uh, maybe you remember, maybe you already know it by heart. But Jesus, right before he ascends into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father, says, all authority is given to me on heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you, and I'm with you always. That should be pretty familiar to you. But, guys, the goal of the Great Commission is not to make converts. It never says that in here. I, I defy you to show me some place where the Great Commission calls us to be engaged in the production of converts. It does not say that. It says that you and I are to be in, in, involved in the production of disciples. And then it goes on to tell us how disciples are made. It says, teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Now, gang, is it clear now? Where is it that I am going to find recorded for me all the things that Jesus has commanded? This book. Gang, I, I'm saying to you that it is impossible to carry out the Great Commission if teaching this book is not central to your mission. Gang, I'll never make one disciple unless I teach them to observe all things that Jesus has commanded me. And where do I find those things? Right here, ladies and gentlemen. I would also point out, have you ever noticed how crucial uh, that this book is to Father Abraham? Do you know the story in Luke 16 about Lazarus and the rich man? It's a great parable, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not really sure it's even a parable, but it's a great story where uh, a rich man and Lazarus, and they both die, and the rich man goes to hell, and and uh, Lazarus goes to heaven, and from hell, the rich man says, oh, come and bring me some water to cool my lips, and, and uh, Father Abraham, who is an image of God, says, sorry, you know, there's a fixed chasm between us. You can't come here, we can't go there. And so Lazarus says, okay, I understand. I'm never going to get over there, and you're never going to get over here, but I've got five brothers that are still alive. Would you possibly send somebody to them? Don't let them come to this place of torment. Send somebody that will speak to them. And uh, Father Abraham replies um, in um, verse 29, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Now, now the man in hell has just requested for somebody to go and, and speak to his brothers. And what does Father Abraham say? They've got the Bible. And then the rich man says, oh, no, no, but you don't understand, Father Abraham. You've got to send somebody from the dead because they're not going to, you know, if, they're going to, if somebody resurrects, then they'll really listen. And I want you to hear what Father Abraham says next. But he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Do you see that, ladies and gentlemen? Father Abraham says, really speaking the, the, the words of God, says, listen, I, I, you need to understand something. If they won't listen to this, they're not going to listen to anything. They're not going to listen to choirs. 
They're not going to listen to brochures. They're not going to listen to athletic teams. They're not even going to listen to the resurrected dead if they won't listen to this book. Gang, if I am ever hopeful of extending the boundaries of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, it will come as this book takes hold of the audiences to which I speak. And then this book goes on to tell me in Isaiah 55 in granting me great encouragements by telling me, don't you worry, Jimmy. My word will not return void. I, I didn't say your sermons wouldn't return void. A lot of them fall on deaf ears. But my word is different. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know whether you ever noticed this, but this is kind of a style around here. In fact, we almost keep score on the staff. How many times does Jimmy say, look at the text when I'm preaching? Look what the text says. Uh, uh, look, notice what the text says. Because, ladies and gentlemen, the promise of God is not attached to my words. But, oh my, it is attached to his. That his word will never return away. And so, ladies and gentlemen, if we ever hope to accomplish the Great Commission, we must have truth as the center, at the center of all of our efforts because it is central to carrying out the, the Great Commission. That's reason number one. Reason number two, it is critical. That is, this book is critical in the sanctification of God's people. You remember in John 17, it's called the High Priestly Prayer. You can look at it if you like. It's a great passage of Scripture. Jesus is praying. Now, guys, you know, we, we call the Lord's Prayer, this one, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be, that we call that the Lord's Prayer. That's not the Lord's Prayer. He never prayed that one. He taught us to pray that one. But the one that he prayed is recorded for us in chapter 17 of John. And in John 17, verse 17, Jesus looks into the eyes of his heavenly Father and says, God, as I'm about to come back home, would you do this for me? Sanctify them. Sanctify your people. Sanctify them by the truth. Thy word is truth. Now that's John 17, 17, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus, the Son of Man, asks that you and I be sanctified by the truth of God, this book. Now what does it mean to be sanctified? Well, that means to be holy. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means to be like Jesus, ladies and gentlemen. And how is that ever going to take place? It's going to take place as I come to grips with the truths contained and taught and applied in this book. Folks, I want you to follow me in Psalm 119. I've got several verses I want to read. Just, uh, just try to find these real hurriedly. Start with 81 and 82. Psalm 119, 81 and 82. My soul thanks for your salvation, but I hope in your word. My eyes fail from searching your word, saying, when will you comfort me? Verse 136, same psalm. Rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. Same psalm, 147, 148. I rise before the dawning of the morning and cry for help. I hope in your word. My eyes are awake through the night watches that I may meditate on your word. Now, gang, what do you hear from this man? 
What kind of mental picture do you get as you read that little snatch of one Psalm, Psalm 119? It is a man who is, is longing. He's groaning to be in touch with the Word of God. He wants to know God, what he has said. And he says, rivers of waters run down my eyes because people don't obey this thing. Now, gang, all of that is said by a man who, as you know, is described as a man after God's own heart. And I submit to you that he is one that is very much like Jesus. And if we were more like him, that is, David, not to speak of Jesus, but if we were more like David, we would be saying some of the same things. I long for your word. I rise early to meditate on your word. Rivers of water come down from my eyes as I watch my culture disobey this book. Ladies and gentlemen, knowledge of and application to me of this book is central, it is critical in the whole process of sanctification. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, there is nothing, nothing more critical. And I say to you, not even prayer. Because I don't even know how to pray unless I study what God has told me about prayer. So, it is important to us because it is central to the commission, to the completion of the, or the mission of accomplishing the Great Commission. It is critical in my sanctification. Number three, it is the basis of all leadership and all counsel. Gang, um, <laughs> as some of you know, the last six months have not been the easiest six months of my ministry. Um, I have wrestled around with a lot of issues that, that have not been entirely comfortable for me. But one, it all started with the issues of leadership. That is, what does a leader do? It's been much on my mind, ladies and gentlemen. What, what, what am I supposed to do in my role as trying to lead a congregation? I want you to know the answer to that is, I'm not fully sure. But I know this much. It has something to do with this book. Follow as I read. Let's begin. Same Psalm, Psalm 10, uh, verse 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Verse 133. Direct my steps by your word. Verse 147. I rise before the dawning of the morning and cry for help. I hope in your word. Stay with me. See if you keep your finger there, but see if you can find Psalm 43 real fast. Psalm 43, 3. Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. I got one other that I want you to see. This is kind of hard to find, but it's in Psalm, I mean, it's in Isaiah 16, where the uh, Isaiah says something that I thought was so intriguing in verse 5. He says, in mercy, the throne will be established and one will sit on it in truth. Gang, if anybody sits on a throne, 
It better be one where truth is known. If there's any leadership whatsoever, it better come from someone who knows truth. Go back to Psalm 119, a couple of more. Verses 98 through 100. 198. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. You know, some of you people are so benighted that you come to me for advice. That's how bad things are. <laughs> You're looking to me to give advice. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers for your testimonies or my meditation. I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. Look at one more verse in verse 24 of that same psalm. Your testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. Ladies and gentlemen, if there's ever to be any decent leadership that it takes place from the from behind this pulpit or from your elders. It must come from knowledge of and application of the precepts and mandates and insights that are garnered from the study and meditation and knowledge of this book. There is no leadership. You will be led, ladies and gentlemen, I can lead you into a can counsel you into utter despair if our leadership and our counsel does not find its point of origin from this book. The leader and the led must hear this book. The fourth reason why truth is so important, and I, I have to say, this is probably my favorite. <laughs> truth is the great liberator. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm a maverick. And I'm telling you, so is this guy on the mar Armando here. In fact, we laugh at our staff meetings because we got a staff full of mavericks. Have you met Randy Ray yet? <clears throat> He's a wild man. And we love him. The text that I'm alluding to is in John 8. Ye shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Gang, nothing is more liberating than the knowledge of truth. I want you to see one other verse in Psalm 119, verse 45. Um... And I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. Gang, truth grants freedom. Error enslaves. You know, I've told you my famous illustration. I've used it so many times around here. People are beginning to use it. I'm sorry, but it's such a good illustration, and it says exactly what I want to say, so bear with it one more time. It's a story that I first heard from Dr. Norman Harper when I was taking a Christian education course at Reformed Theological Seminary, and he told us of an elementary school that was situated on two major thoroughfares, six lanes this way, six lanes that way, and the school was right in the corner. And they had built a wall, a fence around the school to keep the kids safe from the traffic. But the PTA 
came along and saw uh, this horrible visage. They thought, oh, those fences make our children look like they're a bunch of caged animals. We want to get that fence down, down, down. And so they kicked up such a fuss and it finally made it into the papers that the PTA had kicked up such a fuss that the school administration finally put the fence down. And guess what happened the next day at recess? And if you're out there saying that somebody ran out in the traffic and got killed, you're wrong. Because that's exactly what didn't happen. All the kids huddled into the center of the playground because of dread and fear. Gang, when the wall is up, I'm free. When the boundaries have been established by this book, I am free to roam. If I go beyond them, I've sinned. But I am free, set free by this book. Folks, what would you say about someone who ate everything he wanted and as much as he wanted all the time and had just recently gained 175 pounds? Would you call him free? Or would you call him enslaved? You take the, the boundaries down, ladies and gentlemen, and it, people end up being enslaved, not set free. Oh, my friends, one of the reasons that I so adore this book is because it has set me free. I have freedom as outlined for all of us in this inspired book. I want to point out one other thing before I leave this point. Remember the text, John 8, 32, says you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Gang, it is truth that gives experience, not the other way around. Don't ever come to the truth by examining your experience. Your experience may be false. It is truth that gives experience. You can never discover truth by your experience. Don't, don't start with experience and say, oh, as a result of this happening to me, I believe that. No, no, no. I come to the scriptures and I discover, what does it say? What does it mean? And in that, I'm given an experience. You know, guys, it's a, it's a horrible thing in my opinion that we have in the evangelical world today kind of a dichotomy in churches. Uh, that is, you've got churches that have a whole lot of experience, but no truth. And then you got churches that got a whole lot of truth and no experience. Why is that? shouldn't be. Because to know the truth is to set men free. To know what God has said, ladies and gentlemen, is to give its own unique, biblically sanctioned, wonderful, enjoyable experience. Fifth, we've got to hasten on. And finally, another reason that this book, or the fifth reason that this book is so important to us is because it sustains us in periods of suffering. Gang, I want you to look at Psalm 119 one more time. Look at verse 28. Verse 28, David says, My soul melts with heaviness. Strengthen me according to your word. Now find that 165 again, which was our text this morning. Great peace have those who love your law. Now if you'll set those two down side by side, you'll see something. You see that in one place, David admits to being weighed down by sorrow. That's in verse 28. But then in verse 165, he mentions the peace that he has as a lover of the law. 
So David has come from no peace to a posture of peace. And how did he get there? Through knowledge of the Word of God. With God's promises, with God's presence, I'm telling you, my brother and sister in Christ, never should we lose hope. Never should we be overcome. Where is hope to be found during trial? The Word of God. You know, guys, one of the things that I probably say, I don't know, 50 times a year is it grows out of Psalm 91. Don't turn. Let me read this to you. Psalm 91, 4. He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. Here it is. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. I say that to people 50 times a year because they come to me and they say, Oh, Jimmy, you don't know what just happened to me down in the office. They said that I was doing this. And I said, Well, is it true? No, it's not true, but that's what they're saying about me. And I say, well, listen, let me tell you something. Don't worry about it. Let's go find the truth and hide behind it. Because the truth is my shield and my buckler. I'm sorry they think what they think about you or me, but it's not true. And if it's not true... I can hide behind the truth. Gang, in the midst of suffering, what do you say to people? Oops. Or, uh, buck up. Or, um, must not be your day. Or something even more inane. Every cloud has a silver lining. Well, ladies and gentlemen, most of some clouds I've seen are black all the way through. What do you say to them? I'll show you. Psalm 119. Your testimonies. I'm, uh, no, uh, verse 25. 119.25. My soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. Verse 28. My soul melts from heaviness. Strengthen me according to your word. Verse 50. This is my comfort and my affliction, for your word has given me life. Verse 92, unless your law had been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Verse 107, I am afflicted very much. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. What do you say? You take them, ladies and gentlemen, and you try to bring as much comfort as you can muster by pointing them to the promises of God's Word. Gang, I have said this a thousand times. I'll say it a thousand more. This book is more real than the emotions that you're experiencing right now. I'm sorry if you're in pain, but truth is that which delivers us. As we begin to view our situation through eyes that have been trained by this book, it forms for us a grid through which we can look at all of life's circumstances. So fifthly, ladies and gentlemen, the reason that we love it so is because it sustains us during periods of suffering. I want to show you a couple of other things and I'm finished. I'm still in Psalm 119. Look at what David says in verse 72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. 
verse 1 and 27 and 128. Therefore I love your commandments more than gold, yes, than fine gold. Therefore all your precepts concerning all things I consider to be right, and I hate every false way. And then finally, verse 140, where David says, Your word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. <laughs> oh, my friends, we love this book here. We love it for those five reasons. We love it for numerous others. It is the staple of our ministry. And I hope you can see why. I want to read you a quote. And very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, I, I have trouble believing that this quote is real. I cannot believe that this was actually said. Um, it is quoted according to this article that I got on my email in the February 1999 issue of Chronicles Magazine, published by the Rockford Institute. I can only tell you that's the information I've got, but I'm telling you, this is absolutely almost too hard to believe. This comes from the Attorney General of the United States of America, Janet Reno. Listen. A cultist is one who has a strong belief in the Bible. The, coming of, uh, the second coming of Christ, who frequently attends Bible studies, who has a high level of giving to a Christian cause, who homeschools for their children, who has accumulated survival foods and has a strong belief in the Second Amendment, and who distrusts big government. Any one of these may qualify a person as a cultist. But certainly more than one of these would cause us to look at this person as a threat and his family as being in risk, in a risk situation that qualified for government intervention. <laughs> you know what that makes me? Makes me a cultist. So be it. I think she's wrong. I hope one day that you will see how wrong she is. I close with this, ladies and gentlemen. Here's my text. Great peace have those who love your law. And anybody who loves you and points you to any other source of truth besides this one really doesn't love you at all. Our Father, I do pray that your people will be stirred to new heights of pleasure and enjoyment in your word. It is not for uh, intellectual uh, accomplishment's sake. It is so that we might come to know you more fully, to enjoy you more deeply, and to celebrate and worship you more passionately. Oh God, might your people discover that what we're trying to do is a Establish a foothold founded upon a bedrock of truth from which we might cope with all of all that life presents us and from that place of stability begin to serve you with a, with a, a measured, unparalleled commitment. Father, if you brought people here today who have not yet met Jesus Christ, might they see him
as portrayed in this fallible effort of my own. Might your word ring true in the hearts of all your people. We ask it, of course, for Jesus' sake. Amen.